Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Hello and welcome to GodPod. Welcome back to those of you who have listened to lots of GodPods before. Welcome for the first time for those of you for whom this is your first exposure to GodPod. And uh, we are here again for our theological discussion and it's uh, Graham Tomlin here. And we also have our usual home team, which is Jane. Hello. And Michael. Uh, Hello. Jane Williams and Michael Lloyd. And we have a guest today. Uh, there are four of us around our table because we also have um, had the Reverend Dr. Mark Scarlatta, an Old Testament scholar who is with us today. So welcome, Mark. Thank you. And we are gathered around a table this time, not just with biscuits, but with cake. And thank you to Roy Hill for that, uh, who's um, uh, uh, somebody from Houston who has sponsored Houston, Texas. This is something we want to encourage around the world. Definitely do. Sponsoring yeah. cake, absolutely. Yeah, well, cake, cake for us, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not cake generically. Just, uh, it is, exactly. So there's a very nice chocolate cake, which is gradually being eaten as we make our way through the God pots. If, you, if someone goes silent for a while, it's probably because they are munching through their bit of chocolate cake. And if it, Otherwise, it might be a convenient excuse for <laughs> not being able to think of anything intelligent to say. Or they've dozed off or something Although like that. intelligent is not what we always aim for, is it? So. What we aim at is. <laughs> Whether we hit it or not. <laughs> That's not what I've been doing. <laughs> now she tells us. <laughs> and this God Pod is also one where we are um, saying goodbye to uh, somebody who's been a very good um, supporter of God Pod for many years. Sophie. Sophie Francisco has brought the biscuits made the tea, uh, set up the room. She's done a fantastic job. So, Sophie, we are so grateful to you for all that you've done for um, Godpot over the past few years. No one's heard her name, um, but you've heard about the, about the biscuits, and Sophie's basically responsible for the biscuits. Anyway, she's uh, leaving to become an ordinand of the Church of England, which is great. And um, so, uh, Sophie, thank you. Anyway, so um, it's great to have Mark with us. And um, uh, Mark, I think you've been on a Godpod before, haven't you? No, I haven't. Have you never Actually, been on a Godpod yeah, before? This is the first one. Goodness yeah. me, wow. About time we did, because uh, you've been on the staff here at St. Melitus for a number of years. Yes, about six years now, I guess. And um, you've re- recently written a commentary on the book of Exodus, isn't that right? Mm, yes, it just came out last month. Uh, it's called The Abiding Presence, and it's a, um, a theological commentary on Exodus, on the book of Exodus. And it's got a, a kind of flame on the front, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> so The Abiding Presence, and it's uh, published by who? Does that uh, mean it's a book that ought to be burnt? SCM Press, <laughs> exactly. I wasn't trying to uh, subliminate, uh, subliminally tell people to burn it, but yes. Good, a, good for sales yeah, if they exactly, do. Exactly, exactly. You, you, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so is this, is this the fruit of many years of reading Exodus? And why, why, why did you choose that book out of all the Old Testament books you could have written on? Oh, that's a good question. I don't... You know, it's funny. It's been so many years that I don't really remember what was the mm. the, the actual inspiration for it. I can't. I, I was trying to think about that actually on the way down on the train. Because your early work um, was on Cain and Abel and the yes. story in Genesis <clears throat> chapter four, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. So, um, so did my PhD and um, and early work in kind of early chapters of Genesis and Cain and Abel. 
and then um, wanted to, I think, just wanted to get out of Genesis. And um, the and, next book along Exodus. That might very well have been the choice. I just woke up one morning and thought, which book to Turned go on to a few next? Pages. Exactly. <laughs> I hope you live a long time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You've got quite a few to go. Leviticus might be next, but after that. But um, but yeah, I can't remember what the inspiration was. But I do remember that the inspiration was um, came out of, and this is, is, is kind of the whole theme of the of the commentary. Um, the commentary actually takes more of uh, almost almost more of a narrative flow of the of the text and the kind of the theological importance that comes out of it. But um, but one of the things that struck me it was it was a bit of a, a throwaway comment that I had read in a um, in a Jewish scholar, uh, Moshe Greenberg. Um, he said at the beginning of his introduction, you know, one of the one of the defining movements of God in Exodus is is kind of from this um, you know from virtual absence in Exodus 1 and 2 to his uh, filling the tabernacle with his you know unsurpassing glory in Exodus in Exodus 40 and he said you know and then you have these movements from the burning bush to Mount Sinai to finally the filling of the tabernacle and I think that was the little seed that was planted and and I just thought, you know, I haven't read a commentary. And usually, t- kind of traditional exegetical commentaries, use usually, um, you know, you delve into the minutia in a particular mm. verse. And, and, and those are wonderful. They provide historical commentaries and things of that nature, <clears throat> linguistic commentaries. Um, but I hadn't come across a commentary on Exodus that really just followed the natural flow of the story and it seemed to me in that kind of that that comment from Greenberg that there was just this natural progression and almost deliberate progression of God's presence in his salvation for his people moving from heaven to earth Mm. and and actually by the end of the Exodus commentary I thought you know this is this is not just a this is not just an Old Testament movement. This is a movement that sets a type or a pattern for how God works in the world, that, that his movement of salvation has always been from heaven to earth. And then, you know, ultimately in the incarnation, ultimately in the end in Revelation, God, you know, coming back when the heavens and earth will be joined and renewed. Um, and so and so I wanted to, to do something I think that's what the inspiration was. And then as I got into it more and more, and as in anything, you just get into it and you get, you know, things come up and further things. And it was just absolutely, you know, intriguing Mm. to write. But it did seem that there was certainly, in the book of Exodus, a narrative thread that was, you know, I think maybe deliberate by the biblical authors of setting the stage between... 400 years of slavery, you know, the absence of God for this symbolic length of, you know, massive length of time, and then his entering on the scene into Egypt, and then so on and so forth throughout the book. It's interesting, because I, I imagine most people think the narrative of Exodus is is about the freedom from slavery. Mm, yes. Um, and so you've already instantly um, made us look at the whole book in a different kind yeah. of way. I mean, the, the Exodus story, the God liberating his people it's just been so influential in things yeah. like liberation theology black theology that that the whole exodus movement that and and so what you're describing is is a very different way of reading the book mm. by the sound of it. yeah yeah and and it's not to it's not to diminish the, the the notion of liberation i mean i think that's 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 obviously you know a huge part of exodus um 
but that's just a very limited part. You know, mm-hmm. it, it really is. Um, I can't remember who was the scholar I read. I, I can't take credit for this myself, but I thought it was a brilliant commentary on um, when you get to Exodus 15 and the Israelites have gone out of the of the sea and, um, and Moses sings his song. And in, in, in Old Testament scholarship, it's thought to be one of the oldest pieces of yeah. scripture. And um, and it's this just this song of praise, a song of kind of just, you know, praise for the God who who redeems his people, God the warrior God, and all these things. And um, and he looked at the first 15 chapters and said, and said, you know, the first 15 chapters are really like a lament psalm. You know, they start with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then God intervenes, you have a change in the movement, and then they end in kind of this unfettered praise. And so, and so that you know, liberation is definitely in those first 15 chapters, but then you have a whole nother half of the book, which is really dedicated to, well, the giving of, well, the wilderness and then giving of the law at Sinai. But then the other thing that struck me <clears throat> about this movement is, um, is in Exodus 25, when uh, God begins to give Moses instructions to build the tabernacle. And he says, um, and he says to Moses, "Let them build me a tabernacle. Let me build them. A, let them build me. Let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." And so again, you see this progressive movement of God from, <clears throat> you know, from the response in Egypt and and you know the plagues and against Pharaoh to his coming down and this theophany and his his revelation at Sinai, to this saying, "I want to abide in the heart." of my people, my covenant people, and I want to be in this intimate relationship. And to do so, you'll have to create for me kind of my home, which will kind of be a shadow or a, you know, a template of my heavenly, heavenly throne room. And so that, that I think to me became one of the, um, you know, one of the central kind of movements of the text is this idea that God, <clears throat> that God wanted to dwell in the heart of his people. And again, you know, I mean, I think all the types for the incarnation, you know, keep coming out. And, and, and I think that was the other thing about the commentary is, is as I got into it, um, at the end of each chapter, there's a little section on kind of New Testament engagement. And it's, you know, it's out of fairly, you know, su- <laughs> surfacey level. I tried to be, you know, as... <laughs> As, as as good as I could about you know doing my New Testament scholarship, but I wasn't always I wasn't always as detailed probably as I needed to be. But um, but what you see and what was kind of so outstanding, and maybe I think I knew this in the back of my head, is that is that when you read through the Gospels, um, you know every Gospel is essentially based on the Exodus. That everything that comes out in the Gospels is this is a new Exodus in Christ. This is a, this is the new movement of God's salvation. And that movement from, you know, again, from heaven to earth, from the dwelling, you know, John, especially John's prologue, you know, the whole God tabernacling among us and the sun and, and those types of things. But just, you know, throughout Christ's life. Do you, do because um, I guess with, with that idea of the presence of God and God, you know, from, from heaven to earth and um, God wanting to dwell amongst his people, I guess you could take that in an incarnation direction. Mm. In terms of God's presence in in Christ, you you could take it in a kind of a pneumatological direction of mm. um, the gift of the Spirit and the abiding presence yeah. of God by His Spirit. Do, do do you feel there is a kind of a, a trajectory within Exodus that goes in one or two of those directions, or both, or or, 
Where does it where does it land? Do you think? Yeah, I think I think both in. I mean, I think the the incarnational side in the tabernacle is certainly um, kind of apparent in um, in John's gospel, um, especially in the sense of uh, you know John right after saying you know Christ says you know that the son tabernacled among us. You know, it seems to me that John is directly referencing Exodus, that this is, you know, this is God's glory, the glory of the son in the flesh with us. Um, but then right after that in John's gospel is when Jesus confronts the Pharisees about, about tearing down the temple. And, and John gives that little afterthought and says, and says Jesus wasn't referring to the, he was referring to his body. <clears throat> and so I think, the new maybe the new revelation of the um, uh, of Christ in the New Testament is that you know when Christ's body becomes symbolically the temple that is destroyed and raised, then that spirit and that presence is then passed on to the church, which becomes the living temple of Christ in the world. And so you see that. I'm, I'm not sure that you see so much the the movement. Of of kind of incarnational presence in Exodus mm. in kind of you know proceed, or foreseeing Pentecost, but certainly that makes natural sense of the church being Christ's incarnational presence now mm. after you know his death, resurrection, and ascension. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because <clears throat> our generation, particularly in the West, is one in which God seems to many people to be absent. Um, and I guess it's an interesting reminder that you know there have been periods where that was the case, even within biblical history. We tend to think mm. of great things happening the whole time, yeah. but actually there are huge gaps where nothing mm. very much does seem to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's actually a matter of faithfully getting on with worship and mission. Mm. Yeah. Um, when God is not doing the dramatic things that we often read about. Um, and I don't know whether Exodus yeah. helps in that. Yeah, process. I mean, it, it's so you know fascinating because I think oftentimes we're programmed to think. I think even the Old Testament Jews were programmed to think that that when something bad happens or if God is not present, then you know we've done something wrong. And this is one of the things I think that drove the rabbis bonkers was because there was no reason really given in the Old Testament for why God just disappeared for 400 years, essentially, you know, and, and you know, waited for so long um, whilst his people were suffering, you know, under such you know, oppression. And so, you know, it is a fascinating, I mean, I think that alone is just a fascinating topic because you get that in, you know, certainly in the Psalms and the Psalms of lament of God hiding his face. I mean, there's a passage in Isaiah, I can't remember, I think it's Isaiah 42 or 53 or something, but <clears throat> where Isaiah says, you are a God who hides himself. Mm. And I think there is, that, um, there is that side, certainly in the Old Testament, of, of we can't fully explain or comprehend when God seems absent. Or even in that episode, it's, it's God passes by, doesn't he? And they see God's back, not his, not his face. When Moses, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you see the sort of this, this strange the revelation of, yeah, of God, yeah. which is not what you expect it to be. Yeah. And obviously a number of theologians have connected that with the cross. You know, yeah. It says something that's, that doesn't look like a revelation of God, mm -hmm. but actually it is in, in this strange, mysterious way. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think in the Christian, in the Christian tradition, I mean, I, I maybe... 
maybe it's best articulated by someone like St. John of the Cross and the poetry, um, you know, of kind of that, you know, though it is the night, you know, that, that there is that sense of if it's dark, even when it's dark all around, you know, God is somehow, you know, somehow present and, and somehow present in our, you know, in our sufferings or in our, in our, you know, not understanding his presence. Um, so it is, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the mysteries of the, of the Christian faith as well as the, the Jewish faith is that, is that, um, and I, you know, and I, I get a sense sometimes that the biblical authors were concerned with not putting the God that they believed in on a leash. You know, that there are plenty of examples in the Old Testament, in Exodus alone, you know, when God sends Moses back to Egypt, you know, after Moses flees, after he's killed the Egyptian servant, then God sends him back. And on the way, um, if you remember this small passage, in, I think it's in Exodus 4, uh, it might be 3, don't quote me, <laughs> but, uh, but it's when, you know, it's when God basically comes to kill Moses. And you remember, yeah, and, and, and Zipporah kind of, you know, circumcises their son and, and puts the blood on, you know, we don't know whose feet, it doesn't really say, but it could be Moses' feet or whatever. Um, but, but it is this extraordinary passage where you see that you know, the, the God is, is not, I mean, as far as we know, he's not capricious. You know, he doesn't just do things on a whim, but he is also about to kill the, the one person who is, you know, the most important person in the rest of the Pentateuch, or the rest of the Bible, for that matter, until, you know, until Jesus comes along. Um, and, so, and so there is always this sense of, of you know, if, if God is hidden or if he is, you know, we don't, we don't have him on a leash. And I don't think, I think the biblical authors were careful not to feel like if I do X, then God must do Y, you know, type of, type of thing. That's One of the things, sorry, changing the subject a bit, that, that um, I love about that pattern you've described about the God who comes um, to, to uh, make his home with his people is that um, Exodus is, is getting the people of God to their own home. Mm. And it's as though there can't be home for people without it being where God is. Mm. Mm. Um, and it's that pattern that, again, we see in the incarnation, isn't it? We think that, um, that God becomes uh, human so, to be like us. And actually we find it's so that we can remember that we're like God. Mm. So mm. we find our homeliness, our, our actual, um, our natural being as it were mm. only when we connect it with where um we are at home with god and god is at home with us yeah so that yeah. I, I, yeah. I love that pattern of the, of mm. the homecoming motif which um because it um i mean the, uh, as you know better than i do a lot of the hebrew scriptures have this debate internal debate about whether god does need a home or not mm -hmm. um and and you know, probably uh, my suggestion is that he doesn't. Mm. Um, the world is, I mean, he's at home. In, yeah. Um, but we need to know where God is at home so we can be at home there. Where he's mm. available yeah. and where um, we can find him. Yeah. Accessible. Yeah. 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 And that, yeah, and, and that, um, you know, comes out in, in <clears throat> you know, when, when kind of Solomon's prayer, when he dedicates the temple and says, you know, Lord, this is your temple. Um, but we know you're the, you know, that heaven yeah. is your throne and earth is your footstool. You know, so it's kind of this, it, just as you said, this tension of, of we know God has localized his presence here in the temple, you know, in the Holy of Holies. 
but yet it's not like we contain God yeah. in this little place. But it's also uh, as if the universe was intended to be the temple. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <coughs> yeah the um, cosmic temple, exactly. And, and we screwed that up. Yeah. Uh, and so We've done a lot of that, we start, re- start rebuilding small, mm. or just, mm. just this building. And then yeah. it will, through being narrowed even further into yeah. the person of yeah. Jesus, it then spreads out until, again, the whole cosmos mm. Is, mm. is the temple. Yes, exactly. Um, because yeah. actually we can't stop God being at home with us, mm. however much we, I mean, we do try, whichever we try, much we do try. Yeah, so, so the, the uh. fact that we screwed up the cosmos as as uh, the way in which we were at home with God yeah. doesn't stop God finding a way of being at home with us and, mm. and therefore drawing us home to God. Mm. I mean, going on with this idea of presence and the presence of God in His home with us and, and so on, I'm kind of intrigued by this idea of presence and absence and how we understand that. Because I guess there's a lot of um, talking church circles today about you know, the, the presence of God, mm. the kind of felt presence of God. And people often sort of take up that verse, you know, unless you go with us, you know, we cannot do anything mm-hmm. um, unless your presence is with us. And so and that's often interpreted as a, as a felt presence that, that, that actually there needs to be this mm. experienced presence of, of God in worship or sacramental ministry or whatever it might might be um and i suppose I, i'm um intrigued by what you th- you think think about how the this idea of the presence of god in exodus carries on into kind of new testament church life and the life that we have within church now how important is that that experienced presence of the lord and i suppose the other part of the question is to is going back to the absence presence thing when we say god is absent uh are we saying that he's absent or actually are we just saying that he's present but we can't feel him mm, and see him mm, and experience him? Mm. Um, especially when you think of the, you know, yeah. the, the, the 400 years of the yeah. wilderness, wilderness wanderings. Yeah, and so yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so this is a slightly complicated question. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I think but that's a, it's a fascinating one because I think that for, um, for some, you know, for some, depending on, <clears throat> I think it depends on on your your tradition of faith, but for some, you know, that experience of the presence might be in a more kind of charismatic or Pentecostal. Mm. So you actually feel like there is a physical presence of of God, and um, and I think the potential danger in that is that um, if you don't feel, um, then does that mean God is absent, or uh, and 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 I don't think that's the case, um, or does it mean that you've sinned somehow and you don't know what your sin is, and and God's not giving you that same emotional feeling as you had before? I mean, I don't think that's the case. Um, <clears throat> it's been fascinating. Um, one of the uh, one of my recent projects that kind of came out of this Exodus book has been talking about the Sabbath, and um, one of the things that struck me, I've I've kind of moved maybe a little bit more from the charismatic side and the pendulum has swung more to the liturgical side and um, one of the things that has struck me so much about kind of the commandments for Sabbath and for this uh, this rhythm of God's um, that God sets into the order of creation but then sets for his his people Israel um, and then I think continues in the in the in the Christian New Testament is that there is something about the liturgical act, which is kind of a, a, a rupture in time that allows us to break from our ordinary to enter into kind of God's holiness and God's presence. Now, what I have found over the years of the beauty of liturgy is that it is a, 
it is not a, a kind of a monotonous rote act, but it's a it provides a framework to kind of encounter the holy God. And and I'll be the first to admit that sometimes I go through the liturgy and it seems like God is completely absent. Um, but other times, and, and actually just this past Sunday when I was celebrating the Eucharist in my, in my home church, um, there was an immense feeling of God's presence and the, the promise of his presence. And I think for me, uh, also as a priest, um, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the beauties of liturgy is that when I stand, we celebrate the Eucharist every, every Sunday, and when I celebrate, when I go up to the table, whether I feel God there or not, and sometimes he does feel absent, the rehearsal of the liturgy and the saying and the remembering brings us back to this event, you know, this Christ event where all of history changed and all of life changes and we are present in that moment. And so I think I think that you know sometimes sometimes maybe it is our own you know feelings sometimes maybe maybe it is our own kind of something we're hiding in our own lives that is preventing us from being in God's presence um, but but oftentimes I think that God just I think Mike you said this before just calls us to faithfully move on and faithfully um, give him our uh, our allegiance that that you know that it's not a question of, of you know and I think something in the Old Testament that you know the love of God is not uh, an emotion in the Old Testament in the Hebrew it's it's about kind of covenant obedience it's about faithfulness allegiance to uh, to God by how you live and uh, prayer and liturgy are two of the ways that you are faithful in the waiting, mm. uh, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, Job says, all the days of my hard labor, I will wait for my renewal to come. Yeah. The, the, there's a hard labor involved mm. sometimes. Mm. Um, it's almost like you know, when, there is, when there isn't any rain, you dig the irrigation channels anyway, so that when mm. the rain does come, it can do something yeah. and go somewhere and achieve yeah. something and accomplish yeah. something. Well, it strikes me as it's, it's, it's not just a kind of um, a passive waiting, is it? Because there, no. there, mm. there's also a kind of that sort of longing that, that you get throughout the, yeah. the, the, the longing, yeah. the seeking for the face of the Lord. Um, that though, though there are times, and there will be times, when mm. God's presence is not experienced and, and felt directly. Um, it's not that you just sort of, oh, well, that's tough. You know. <laughs> um, let's get on with life. Yeah. You, know. it, you, you constantly else. seek yeah. for, for it. Mm. And that don't mean, doesn't mean that, you know, that um, uh, you think, oh, God is absent. It's, it's just that knowledge of the presence of God even when you don't experience him, but still longing for that thing because it seems to me it's important that every now and again we are able to, mm. To, to, mm. To, to, to see the face of, of God and know his presence in our hearts yeah. as well as our, yeah. as our, as our, our heads. Mm. And there may be times when that goes on for quite a long period of time, you know, as, as you say, with St. John of the Cross and the dark night of the soul. Mm. Um, but God does graciously give us those experiences where, we, where we're able to, to sort of feel his, his presence yeah. as well as just to know it. But he, Sorry. And God also gives us um, those places where even when we don't feel God's presence, those are um, tokens and and assurances of oh. the presence of God. And obviously the Bible is one of them. I always find it very striking that in mm. the stories of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, um, Jesus doesn't hear the Father. 
he's heard him at, at the baptism, yeah. but he doesn't hear the father speaking. But he but he's got the scriptures. Yeah. He quotes the scriptures. Mm. He's got that certainty of, of of the ongoing presence and character of God that is deep in in him because he's 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 read the scriptures all his life, uh, and as you were saying, Mark, he, the, the, the um, God's promise to meet us in the sacraments. Mm. There are um, there are t- these touchstones um, mm. that mean even and when one we another don't in the Christian community yeah. as we gather. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even yeah. when we don't <coughs> personally feel the presence of God, mm. um, there are the mm. places to hang on to. Mm. And, and spiritual health and discipline mm. is partly <clears throat> getting a balance between not being resigned to God's absence, as you were saying, yeah. Graham, mm. on the one hand, nor overly dependent upon mm. dramatic experiences or signs of mm. his presence yeah. on the other. Yeah. Uh, I remember going to a church once where the, the preacher said, if I didn't believe that um, revival was going to happen in my lifetime, I'd just give up. And I kind of thought, you probably it may well not. Right. <laughs> and, and you've got to have is a he still now. alive? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's about faithfully getting on with it, yeah. longingly. <clears throat> And um, with expectancy, and with so, expectancy, so, but so that you don't think oh, God is never going to nope. act. I'm never going to feel the presence of God. Again. Well, I mean, wasn't that the big um, kind of the big splash when Mother Teresa's kind of memoirs came out, or her mm. her um, her diaries, or something? Yep. Um, yep. That she, you know, went through quite years a strong and years where she, yeah, yeah, had yeah. no cons- none of the consolations yeah. of the spirit, and yet you look at her work and her faithful service, and you mm. think, oh my goodness, you know, mm. yes, mm. Mm. getting on with the job going yeah. on there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, just yeah. just one last thing um, to, to touch on related to Exodus, which is um, actually is related to one of the questions that came in to to um, to us from Claire. Uh, you asked us a question about Sabbath mm. and busyness, and obviously that's a theme within. Exodus, and I suppose it relates also to the presence of God, doesn't it? Because you know, Sabbath mm. is the place where you um, you cease your work and yeah. you, you you seek the, the face of God and and, and so on. Um, is there anything you'd say about some um, the Sabbath in Exodus and its importance within uh, kind of uh, mm. that text, but also its importance for for today? Yeah, for today. <clears throat> well, you can buy my book whenever it comes out. <laughs> read it, read it. On your I Sundays. am literally just <laughs> finishing it up. Um, <clears throat> but to give you a brief, this is a separate, a, a one. brief summary. This is not the Exodus one. This, this is not the Exodus one. This came out of came out of Exodus. Written um, on a sabbatical, I hope. It, it, yes, exactly. Um, it. Um, I mean, I think one of the one of the most important stories about um, well, obviously you have the creation account of Genesis one and two, and that kind of establishes God's rest on the seventh day. Um, but one of the second most important stories, I think, surrounding the Sabbath rest is this this picture of Israel in the wilderness in their tents. You know, they've just been freed; they've been released from four hundred years of slavery, and God says, "I will give you a gift." And the gift is is manna. The gift is this gift of food every day that they will not have to kind of toil and labor to try to produce food in the wilderness because they can't. Um, But with the gift, always in the Old Testament, with the gift comes a command. And the command is that you will gather for six days. On the seventh or on the sixth day, God will provide double the amount. And then you won't, uh, and then you won't gather. You'll cease on the seventh, just as God ceased at the end of his at the end of creation. And then, of course, Israel disobeys, and <laughs> the, the, somebody goes out and looks for you know manna on the seventh day, and God gets furious, and Moses says, "Go back to your tent." Um, <clears throat> so, but the point is, is, is that, is that in this, 
almost this infant stage of this newborn nation. You know, Israel has come up from the waters. They've been born out of Egypt as a new nation. And God is shaping them in the wilderness to, to trust him, to, to follow his pattern of life. And one of the things that becomes so uh, apparent in the book of Exodus and then later um, in the biblical text is that one of the most critical patterns of living for humanity, not just Israel, but for all of humanity, because it goes back to Genesis 1, uh, is this pattern of six and one. And it's this pattern of you do your work in the world, and then for one day you put down your tools, you put down your means for economic prosperity, your um, whatever it is you do in the world, and you, and you cease, and you rest, and you enter into one of the things we remember from Genesis 2 God sanctifies and blesses time this holiness of time and so the Sabbath becomes this day of experiencing God in the holiness of time but also experiencing just as you said before Graham experiencing God through one another in the community of faith that Sabbath is as much about family and friends and sitting around the table and celebrating in a day of rest as it is about celebrating in the holy God who like gave us this gift Sabbath is not it's not kind of rest in the sense of oh, I'm so exhausted I need to rest mm-hmm. so that I can go back to work again the following day yes 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 it's almost the other way around. The point of working is so that on the Sabbath you can offer it back to God and you can yeah. rejoice and enjoy and and, and um, celebrate. Yeah. So the Sabbath is the kind of culmination mm. um, of, yeah. of everything that goes on um, rather than a, a, a rest in order to do the thing that really matters, which is to work hard and produce stuff and so on. Yeah. And, and has it impacted how you live your life yes. doing this work on Sabbath? Yes, <laughs> completely. Really? Yeah. No, it really has. Um, you know, I have a, a little church in Cambridge that I oversee and um, and then, of course, uh, work here full time at the, at the college. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I, my, I have to kind of take my Sabbath on, on Saturday. So, so I actually follow the Jewish Sabbath because Friday evening to Saturday evening is the only time that I can have like a moment of rest. Sunday is a day of celebration. It's day of worship. Yeah. It's the Lord's Day. But it's still kind of as a priest, it still feels a bit sometimes a bit like work. Anyway, um, but it has changed my entire um, perspective, just as, as you just said, Graham, on the rhythm of life that that everything moves towards the sabbath day you know that that the refreshment and the promise of rest and you know for me in my life and this kind of comes out in the book is is just you know the question of you know we live in such a in, in a very high speed consumer driven society but not only that we live in a digital world now that consumes us with our screens um, kind of, you know, <laughs> notifying us every, you know, every two seconds. Phones going always, off in the middle of always, this, yeah, <laughs> always these distractions. And and one of the things, uh, Jane, you're asking, one of the things that has changed in my life is that um, is that I've I, I completely cut out any digital use on the Sabbath now. So mm-hmm. so my phone is turned off. I don't go to my computer. And I can't tell you how liberating that mm-hmm. has been. Uh, you know, Ooh. just spending a week of you know, being you know always on the screen and the phone and the computer, uh, and then 
having a day of Sabbath to, you know, go do some work in the garden, to play with the kids, to, you know, cook food or to go for a bike ride, whatever it is. Um, you know, it, it's something that has become you know, so encompassing of my week mm -hmm. and kind of shapes. So the week is, is not, oh, I've got this exhausting week ahead and then I'm just going to collapse on the Sabbath. It's, you know, everything is kind of building up to the Sabbath, mm -hmm. to this day of rest yeah. that God has promised. And my understanding is that in the, <coughs> the ancient Near East, mm. um, slaves didn't get a day off. Oh, well, they wouldn't have. No, yeah. no, not in any normal society. Yeah. And therefore the... the, the wording of mm. the commandment is really interesting uh, on it you shall do no work neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female mm. servant yeah um it's a way of saying no slaves yeah actually yeah and one of the things i always think about our society is that we have voluntarily gone back into slavery mm. yes. by, by, n by not observing the Sabbath, yes. not taking that time off not yes. observing that one in seven mm. uh, rhythm yeah uh, we've kind of willingly yeah. gone back yeah and it's and it's i think one of the things also about the sabbath that you see is that it is you know especially in creation and then how it is to affect israel is that sabbath is is not so much just a singular day it is really a movement of god towards wholeness and and you know and healing and this is i think when you get into the sabbath in the new testament well, in the old testament you have kind of all the sabbath laws of you you know your slaves rest everybody in your household rests on the sabbath day but after um seven years the land is allowed a sabbath rest and then after seven years of sabbath after 49 years you have the year of jubilee and so you begin to see that sabbath is not so much just a simple kind of day of rest and ceasing it's it's a movement of society it's about the principles of rest and liberation for both you know the wealthy and and the slave you know and 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 restoration you know and then and, and then at that yeah and then at that um you know at that jubilee there is this time of you know of leveling the field again you know that everybody you know whether you've been economically prosperous or whether you've been uh you know had difficult times you've been sold into into bond slavery whatever it is <clears throat> the 50th year of jubilee becomes this you know this moment of release and then you know when you get to the new testament uh christ is that kind of symbolic jubilee you know as he reads from the scroll in isaiah well talking about sabbath rest from our labors we uh, should probably come to the end of this god pod so um uh, mark it's been fascinating to talk with you about um exodus and uh, so um the book is called a remind us again oh the abiding presence a theological commentary in exodus by Mark Scarlatta. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, Mark, it's been great to have you with us. Yeah, and um, thank you, as always, to Michael and to Jane. And to Roy for the cake. Thank you, Roy. Right. Yes, we will dig into a bit more cake yeah. when we finish. But um, that's it for this God Pod, and hopefully, we'll see you again or hear from you or you'll hear from us. was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. <laughs>